Chapters 2 and 3 of Book 1 of Les Miserables, Volume 5, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Les Miserables, Volume 5, by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabelle Florence Hepgood. Book the First. THE WAR BETWEEN FOUR WALLS CHAPTER Two: WHAT IS TO BE DONE IN THE ABYSS IF ONE DOES NOT CONVERSE Sixteen years count in the subterranean education of insurrection, and June 1848 knew a great deal more about it than June 1832. So the barricade of the Rue de la Chanvrerie was only an outline, and an embryo compared to the two colossal barricades which we have just sketched, but it was formidable for that epoch. The insurgents, under the eye of Enjolras, for Marius no longer looked after anything, had made good use of the night. The barricade had been not only repaired, but augmented. They had raised it two feet. Bars of iron planted in the pavement resembled lances in rest. All sorts of rubbish brought and added from all directions complicated the external confusion. The redoubt had been cleverly made over into a wall on the inside and a thicket on the outside. The staircase of paving stones which permitted one to mount it like the wall of a citadel had been reconstructed. The barricade had been put in order, the tap-room disencumbered, the kitchen appropriated for the ambulance, the dressing of the wounded completed, the powder scattered on the ground and on the tables had been gathered up, bullets run, cartridges manufactured, lint scraped, the fallen weapons redistributed, the interior of the redoubt cleaned, the rubbish swept up, corpses removed. They laid the dead in a heap in the Mont de Tourlaine, of which they were still the masters. The pavement was red for a long time at that spot. Among the dead there were four National Guardsmen of the suburbs. Enjolras had their uniforms laid aside. Enjolras had advised two hours of sleep. Advice from Enjolras was a command. Still, only three or four took advantage of it. Feuilly employed those two hours in engraving this inscription on the wall which faced the tavern. Long live the peoples! These four words, hollowed out in the rough stone with a nail, could be still read on the wall in 1848. The three women had profited by the respite of the night to vanish definitely, which allowed the insurgents to breathe more freely. They had found means of taking refuge in some neighboring house. The greater part of the wounded were able and wished to fight still. On a litter of mattresses and trusses of straw in the kitchen, which had been converted into an ambulance, there were five men gravely wounded, two of whom were municipal guardsmen. The municipal guardsmen were attended to first. In the tap-room there remained only Mabeuf under his black cloth and Javert bound to his post. This is the hall of the dead, said Enjolras. 
In the interior of this hall, barely lighted by a candle at one end, the mortuary table being behind the post like a horizontal bar, a sort of vast, vague cross resulted from Javert erect and Mabeuf lying prone. The pole of the omnibus, although snapped off by the fusillade, was still sufficiently upright to admit of their fastening the flag to it. Enjolras, who possessed that quality of a leader of always doing what he said, attached to this staff the bullet-ridden and the bloody coat of the old man's. No repast had been possible. There was neither bread nor meat. The fifty men in the barricade had speedily exhausted the scanty provisions of the wine-shop during the sixteen hours which they had passed there. At a given moment, every barricade inevitably becomes the raft of the Meduse. They were obliged to resign themselves to hunger. They had then reached the first hours of that Spartan day of the 6th of June, when in the barricade Saint-Méry, Jeanne, surrounded by the insurgents who demanded bread, replied to all combatants, crying, Something to eat? With, Why? It is three o'clock. At four o'clock we shall be dead. As they could no longer eat, Enjolras forbade them to drink. He interdicted wine and portioned out the brandy. They had found in the cellar fifteen full bottles hermetically sealed. Enjolras and Combeferre examined them. Combeferre, when he came up again, said, It's the old stock of Father Hucheloup, who began business as a grocer. It must be real wine, observed Bossuet. It's lucky that Grantaire is asleep. If he were on foot, there would be a good deal of difficulty in saving these bottles. Enjolras, in spite of all murmurs, placed his veto on the fifteen bottles, and in order that no one might touch them, he had them placed under the table on which Father Mabeuf was lying. About two o'clock in the morning they reckoned up their strength. There were still thirty-seven of them. The day began to dawn. The torch, which had been replaced in its cavity in the pavement, had just been extinguished. The interior of the barricade, that species of tiny courtyard appropriated from the street, was bathed in shadows and resembled athwart the vague twilight horror the deck of a disabled ship. The combatants, as they went and came, moved about there like black forms. Above that terrible nesting place of doom and gloom, the stories of the mute houses were lividly outlined. At the very top, the chimney stood palely out. The sky was of that charming, undecided hue, which may be white and may be blue. Birds flew about in it with cries of joy. The lofty house which formed the back of the barricade being turned to the east had upon its roof a rosy reflection. The morning breeze ruffled the gray hair on the head of the dead man at the third-story window. I am delighted that the torch has been extinguished, said Courfeyac to Feuilly. That torch flickering in the wind annoyed me. It had the appearance of being afraid. The light of torches resembles the wisdom of cowards. It gives a bad light because it trembles. Dawn awakens minds as it does the birds. All began to talk. 
Jolie, perceiving a cat prowling on a gutter, extracted philosophy from it. What is the cat? he exclaimed. It is a corrective. The good God, having made the mouse, said, Hello, I have committed a blunder. And so he made the cat. The cat is the erratum of the mouse. The mouse plus the cat is the proof of creation revised and corrected. Combeferre, surrounded by students and artisans, was speaking of the dead, of Jean Prouvaire, of Baurel, of Mabeuf, and even of Cabuc, and of Enjolras' sad severity. He said, Harmodius and Aristogiton, Brutus, Chereus, Stephanus, Cromwell, Charlotte, Corday, Sand, have all had their moment of agony when it was too late. Our hearts quiver so, and human life is such a mystery that even in the case of a civic murder, even in a murder for liberation, if there be such a thing, the remorse for having struck a man surpasses the joy of having served the human race. And such are the windings of the exchange of speech, that a moment later, by a transition brought about through Jean Prouvaire's verses, Combeferre was comparing the translators of the Georgics, Rau with Cournant, Cournant with Delisle, pointing out the passages translated by Malfilatre, particularly the prodigies of Caesar's death, and at that word, Caesar, the conversation reverted to Brutus. Caesar, said Combeferre, fell justly. Cicero was severe toward Caesar, and he was right. That severity is not diatribe. When Zoilus insults Homer, when Maivius insults Virgil, when Vise insults Molière, when Pope insults Shakespeare, when Frederick insults Voltaire, it is an old law of envy and hatred which is being carried out. Genius attracts insult. Great men are always more or less barked at. But Zoilus and Cicero are two different persons. Cicero is an arbiter in thought, just as Brutus is an arbiter by the sword. For my part, I blame that last justice, the blade. But antiquity admitted it. Caesar, the violator of the Rubicon, conferring as though they came from him, the dignities which emanated from the people, not rising at the entrance of the Senate, committed the acts of a king and almost of a tyrant, regia ac pene tyrannica. He was a great man, so much the worse, or so much the better. The lesson is but the more exalted. His twenty-three wounds touch me less than the spitting in the face of Jesus Christ. Caesar is stabbed by the senators. Christ is cuffed by lackeys. One feels the God through the greater outrage. Bossuet, who towered above the interlocutors from the summit of a heap of paving stones, exclaimed, rifle in hand, O oh, Sidithinium, O oh, Myrhinus, O oh, Probolinthus, O oh, graces of the Ientides, O oh, who will grant me to pronounce the verses of Homer like a Greek of Lorium, or of Adeption. Chapter 3 Light and Shadow Enjolras had been to make a reconnaissance. 
He had made his way out through Mondetour Lane, gliding along close to the houses. The insurgents, we will remark, were full of hope. The manner in which they had repulsed the attack of the preceding night had caused them to almost disdain in advance the attack at dawn. They waited for it with a smile. They had no more doubt as to their success than as to their cause. Moreover, succor was evidently on the way to them. They reckoned on it. With that facility of triumphant prophecy, which is one of the sources of strength in the French combatant, they divided the day which was at hand into three distinct phases. At six o'clock in the morning, a regiment which had been labored with, quote-unquote, would turn. At noon, the insurrection of all Paris. At sunset, revolution. They heard the alarm bell of Saint-Méry, which had not been silent for an instant since the night before, a proof that the other barricade, the great one, Jeanne's, still held out. All these hopes were exchanged between the different groups in a sort of gay and formidable whisper, which resembled the warlike hum of a hive of bees. Enjolras reappeared. He returned from his somber eagle flight into outer darkness. He listened for a moment to all this joy with folded arms and one hand on his mouth. Then, fresh and rosy in the growing whiteness of the dawn, he said, The whole army of Paris is to strike. A third of the army is bearing down upon the barricades in which you now are. There is the National Guard in addition. I have picked out the shakos of the fifth of the line and the standard bearers of the sixth legion. In one hour you will be attacked. As for the populace, it was seething yesterday. Today it is not stirring. There is nothing to expect, nothing to hope for, neither from a faubourg nor from a regiment. You are abandoned." These words fell upon the buzzing of the groups and produced on them the effect caused on a swarm of bees by the first drops of a storm. A moment of indescribable silence ensued, in which death might have been heard flitting by. This moment was brief. A voice from the obscurest depths of the groups shouted to Enjolras, So be it! Let us raise the barricade to a height of twenty feet. And let us all remain in it. Citizens, let us offer the protests of corpses. Let us show that if the people abandon the Republicans, the Republicans do not abandon the people. These words freed the thought of all from the painful cloud of individual anxieties. It was hailed with an enthusiastic acclamation. No one ever has known the name of the man who spoke thus. He was some unknown blouse-wearer, a stranger, a man forgotten, a passing hero, that great anonymous, always mingled in human crises and in social geniuses, who, at a given moment, utters in a supreme fashion the decisive word, and who vanishes into the shadows after having represented for a minute in a lightning flash the people and God. This inexorable resolution so thoroughly impregnated the air of the 6th of June, 1832, that almost at the very same hour, on the barricade Saint-Méry, 
the insurgents were raising that clamor which has become a matter of history and which has been consigned to the documents in the case. Quote, unquote, what matters it whether they come to our assistance or not? Let us get ourselves killed here to the very last man. As the reader sees, the two barricades, though materially isolated, were in communication with each other. End of Book One, Chapters Two and Three